Charles uh, Dickens writes in his classic uh, novel, The Christmas Carol, the, the beginning paragraph, uh, such a vivid description to where you're left without any, de- uh, any doubt that Marley is dead. In fact, that's a, the opening line of the statement of that story, Marley is dead. This we are certain of. Well, there is something to be said about the narrative in front of us that God wants us to understand that as we see Lazarus in this miracle that's taking place, there is without any doubt that the man is dead and has been dead for some time. And that's what makes all of this story so remarkable. It brings my mind back to that uh, Heidelberg Catechism opening question. Some of you may have remembered that in your childhood or in your youth at church it begins this way what is our only hope in life and death and as they ask the question doesn't it really connect those two great realities of our existence the here and now what's going on the world around us what we busy ourselves with day in and day out our, our existence, our quality of life, our kind of life, the struggles, the, the future, all that, that revolves around being you in the world in which you live in. And it unites that with the reality that that life is fleeting and death is certain. You say, well, that's a grim way of starting a sermon on a Sunday morning before Labor Day, but it is a reality uh, that is set in front of us in John 11. Life and death. Uh, The problem in our human existence is we busy ourselves with life, sustaining and encumbered about all the things that life are entailed with or, or that is involved with. And the world, by and large, at least in the secular mind, takes the death part or, or what happens after life, after we cease to be as we are, and kind of punts it down the field a little bit. We'll deal with that when we get there, and hopefully it'll be like some of the other atheists says, and we'll just cease to be. On the other side of that, we find ourselves living in an a uncertain age with religious ambition and effort, which is relentlessly trying to, to fix the problem with death by overworking ourselves uh, to burnout. It really goes back to the Islamic point of view, and that is somehow our good, somehow our human efforts and some deeds that we do is potent enough, is is powerful enough or good enough to cure or fix or outweigh the bad. You know the old saying that I'm a good person or I've done good things or I'm hoping at the end... I have this kind of wishful thinking that at the end the good will outweigh the bad. Well, in either case, we find that that is a miserable place to be because the Bible says that that is a fool's errand. It's futile. The good that we do, that we perceive to be good in our current state of being, is in itself contaminated by the sinful selfishness of our current position, our current lives. So we face this kind of uncertainty or this reality, the certainty of death, with the uncertainty of what happens after that, with, with maybe like a Hail Mary that my good will outweigh the bad. And the Bible says that even our good deeds, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
And so the question comes to us. It is, a, it is an important question. Humanity has been giving itself to either doing the one at the expense of the other or vice versa. And it's saying, is there some kind of hope that is fixed in between them that unites them together? Is there something that can help me in this life and all the things that I face? Is there something that can encourage me and, and stiffen me or steel me against all that will come at me? And is there that same thing? Is it, is it good enough to help me concerning death and hereafter? Because I need to get both of those figured out. I need not only to to figure life out and how to live this life with some kind of certainty or hope, but I need to, to deal with, if death is certain, which we all agree here, I'm sure death is certain. If death is certain, I need to get that figured out as well. In fact, what we find in the contrast is we see that current our current lives, temporary, fleeting, and our future, which is eternal, permanent, which means, in layman's terms, it lasts a really, really long time. So the divines ask us the question, what is our only hope in life and death? What is your only hope in life and death? What binds them together? What is that, that one thing that, that unites them, that, that fixes that or helps us or gives us confidence in dealing with both of those large realities? Well, the answer is given to us uh, as they answer the question in the catechism. And I will quote it for you. My only hope in life and death is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, has set me free from all the power of the devil. He has preserved me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily, willingly, and ready from now on to live for him. Don't you wish people talked like that more today? Our only hope in life and death. Jesus stepping into a funeral service and the reality both of life and death, the fleetingness of life as they... And that's what you do at a funeral. You think about the, the fragileness of our human existence. We, we mourn not only for the loss of what we have, but we see our own lives and the temporariness of it, don't we? How often have you went to a funeral and you've thought about your own existence? You've thought about as testimonies were given uh, of the person who has passed away, your own life, and what testimonies will be said about you. You're, you're at times, as you sit in a service like that, orchestrating and organizing your own funeral service. And, and that is a reality. Ecclesiastes says there's wisdom in that. And it is here in this kind of setting as we see life and death in the balance, the, the reality of it on the front line that Jesus points to himself and says, here is the hope, it is me, I am the resurrection and the life. Now let me give you a little context as we've seen this. Jesus had been ministering, he had left Jerusalem, and the reason he left Jerusalem was they were seeking to put him to death. At the end of this chapter, we won't deal with today, uh, this miracle, the last sign which John gives to us in John's gospel 
or in this narrative of Jesus' life, uh, this last sign will be the, the kind of pushing the card over the edge, so to speak. Uh, they will plot and they will, they will maneuver and we will see them putting Jesus to death. Uh, this is the last straw. Well, as he was there ministering where John was baptizing, Lazarus' news came that he's sick. Probably by the time the messenger got to Jesus, maybe a day's journey, Lazarus had already been dead. And Jesus, we looked at last week, intentionally waited out of his love for both his disciples and Mary and Martha and even Lazarus. He waited two days to come and intervene or to come and visit the family. And most people know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus was a prominent family, partly because of their location to Jerusalem. They housed and they ministered to Jesus, which would have taken some resources and space. Jesus always had a crowd with him. You couldn't do that in a, uh, a shack. And so it was a prominent family. News of many people coming to, to console the the. The sisters in verse number 19, so people say this must have been uh, people that was uh, well-respected or whatever the case may be. Well, verse 17 picks up as Jesus, uh, you almost want to say something about Thomas, where he says, let's go and die with him, but never, we, we won't touch on that this morning. Verse number 17, he had a good outlook on life. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for days. It gives us some insight to why Jesus delayed. Now, commentators will tell us that what is going on here is something of a, a belief among rabbis, among the Jewish people, that the, the soul of man, the spirit, kind of hovered around the body three days and, and then trying to get back into the body and, and because God has made us body and soul or body and spirit. And after the body begins decaying, the spirit departs and goes to wherever it's going, right? And so what they're saying here, if that is true and what is believed in that, it appears to be the case that Jesus did exactly what we see Charles Dickinson did and made the statement, Lazarus was dead, that we're sure about. Four days, so there's no mystic. There could be no one coming up and say, well, the spirit was trying to get in the whole time, and, and, and you know, and, and no, he was dead. We see that later on being emphasized that by this time his body had already been decaying and stinking. <clears throat> well, you, um, you that like forensics and all that stuff, you can work that out on your own how that's supposed to be. Notice as he reads, verse number 18, as he comes two miles off was Bethany, so it made a, an easy place. Jesus will spend his last days there uh, going back and forth from this house to Jerusalem in his last week as he ministers there. A uh, very close uh, place for uh, Jesus to go. And, but it also notes that Jesus is stepping into dangerous territory. It's not a friendly environment. Last time he was there, they tried to put him to death. We noticed that. Take up stones to stone him. That's what Thomas was all about. He's like, he's like they're, they're wanting to kill you and you're wanting to go there. Lazarus is dead. They're going to kill you. We might as well just go and all die and, and, and just end this thing. And yet Jesus goes anyway. But as he's going, and you can kind of play this out in your mind, Martha 
Martha hears word and sees that Jesus is coming. And she does what she normally does. She's, she's normally one who is attributed with action. And she's busy. She's, she's a kind of get it done sort of person. And as she sees Jesus coming, she runs out to meet him. Can you imagine the thought, if you could put yourself in the narrative? She had sent word to heal her brother, and Jesus would have wanted to know, and maybe he could come and do something, and, and she knows he could have healed her and healed him. And, and, and there he comes. It's late. She's been grieving and weeping for four days. And, and here he comes, and notice as she speaks to him. Verse number 21 Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, is that a true statement? It is true, isn't it? He even told his disciples, I'm glad I was not there for your, for your sakes, so that you might believe. And yet she's coming to him with this accusation in some sense, this word of lament, this kind of expression of her grief and mourning and the reality that she had sent for him. And if he had been there, if he had been in the presence, then, then her brother would not have died. She'd have been spared of all this griefing. And, and at that moment she says that, almost seeming to, to accuse Jesus, she makes this great declaration of faith, doesn't she? But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give it you. It's almost like faith steals her in the middle of lament. You see that in the Psalms, don't you? As the psalmist cries out, and you're thinking, this just, I'm, I'm just reading this in devotion. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I mean, does people really talk like that to God when they, when they go through the things that they go through? And then all of a sudden, in the middle of, of mourning or, or grieving, you see that word of faith, that declaration of that reality of one's faith and trust in God. I think that's what you see in Martha here. I don't think she knows what she's saying, but she knows that Jesus can do something. I don't think she's worked out the fact that he can raise him from the dead, but, but we know that God hears you and... You can do something. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. Notice, he doesn't chide her, does he? Does he rebuke her? Does he beat her down, this grieving woman who's who's at the loss of her brother and all that that she's gone through emotionally and, and, and the difficulty of all of this as she comes to Jesus? Does he say, you silly woman, what are you thinking? Talking to me like that. Does God talk to you like that when you approach Him in your grief and sorrow? We see the gentle lowliness of our Savior, don't we? As He just, instead of rebuking her, which He could have. I must be about my Father's business. He could have done that. Instead, what does He do? Give her a promise. Some of you may have been at a, a funeral service or in a setting where it was awkward and you just didn't know what to say have you ever been there any of you raise your hand you have participation this morning and sometimes we say we're praying for you and maybe that's all you can get out what does jesus say to a woman who's lost her brother who's weeping probably a younger brother we believe what does he say to her well he gives her a promise notice verse number there's three promises given in this section the first is this Verse 23, he said to her, your brother will rise again. 
He points her to the resurrection, doesn't he? He will rise again. He will live. This is not final. This is not the, the last stop of your brother. His body that's been decaying in four days and all that you've experienced is not the last word. He will rise again. Your sorrow will be turned into gladness. Now Martha, she has read her Bible and she has worked through the study in the book of Daniel with us here on Wednesday night a long time ago. And she knows Daniel 12, 1 and 2, just like you did who were here for that study, that says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Every one whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Martha says, I know, Lord. In the last day, he will rise. Now, is Martha right? She's right. That's two for two with Martha. I know that it will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Verse 24. So Jesus gives her another promise. Notice, Whoever believes in me, verse number 25, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this statement is dependent upon this this statement about himself. This promise is dependent upon the reality of who Jesus claims to be. I am the resurrection and the life. He said, Martha, don't you understand all of Lazarus' hope and your hope for Lazarus rests in me? When, when you're looking for God to vindicate you as being a faithful follower, when, when you're looking for vindication on the last day, when you're looking for life and entrance into everlasting bliss and all that, that was promised in the Old Testament, all that you anticipate, don't you know all of that will be ushered in, executed, carried on by me? Think about that. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This whole thing hinges and, and the substance of it, the execution of it, rests solely on the shoulders, the life and the death, the resurrection, the authority, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. All of human history, eternity, both life and death, rest in Him. That's what he's claiming here. You look at the last day and I'm telling you to look to me. Everything pertaining to this and Daniel and many other places we find in the New Testament rest in he himself. Rest in Christ. This is the idea he says here earlier on in John chapter number 5. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Later on in chapter number 5, He says this, He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Jesus speaking of Himself. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In chapter number 6, 
Jesus taught us that He will raise them up in the last day, those who have put their faith and trust in Him. That's a promise that He's giving in verse number 25. Those who physically die trusting Jesus, putting their faith in Christ, those who physically die will live. Death is not the final word. Death is not the the end of the sentence, and that's all there is. He says, those who die believing in Him, having believed in Him, shall live. Of course, death here is that physical death. And our body, will, we will all face, won't we? Not one of us exempt from that unless the Lord comes back and gathers us up to be with Himself. We will all die. And He's saying, yet for the believer, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, He gives this promise that they shall live. They shall enter into His presence. They shall be given life. They have hope in the day of judgment. We know Paul speaks of that, don't we? To be absent from the body is to be present with whom? And Jesus says this life is given to those who physically die. Dear friends, I know that that sickness at times is difficult to navigate in our lives and in our loved ones. And yet in the promise is given to us to console us, to comfort us, to give us the courage to face whatever, whatever providence we might be facing, whatever difficulties we might be facing. Courage is given to us that the promise that he will keep us. And that the passing away out of this life, the laying down of this body is only to, to, to be raised up in a better body, in a better state in the presence of God. Paul says it like this. He says, I put off one tent which is temporary and I groan to put on that eternal tent which is eternal fashioned after the likeness of Jesus. He has given us that hope in death that we shall live those who believe Him. And doesn't he tell us that that kind of promise gives us great encouragement as we grieve and mourn our loved ones? As we think about the lives that have been taken and the families that's been disrupted and, and all that we go through as we remember? It's not saying that it's not difficult. It's not saying that there's no sorrow in these kind of things. What he's saying is that the believer can, can face all this, can grieve through all of this with hope. Not as the world grieves. Paul reminds the church of this in First Thessalonians. Why? Because death is not it. It's not the end. The presence of Christ and His promise that He will keep us. I think of that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Now, there's a line in that that really stands out. He says, He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Dear friends, that's what he's telling Martha as she thinks about her brother in the tomb. Don't you know those who have put their faith in Christ, who have died in the Lord, trusting him will live? But then he adds to that another promise in verse number 26. He 
Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, so now we're dealing with Lazarus and, and people who have passed on believing in Christ and who have died. And now we're speaking to Mary and Martha and us this morning. And he says in verse number 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So do you believe it? Right there. What does he mean? Because he talked about dying and living. Now he's talking about living and dying. What is he talking about? Well, we know Martha died, Mary, and Lazarus died again. And then be like, here I am. It's me again, Lord. You know, so maybe that happened that way when he passed away uh, the second time. So he's not saying that you will never lay off this mortal flesh. We know Paul says in Corinthians 15 that our mortal body shall have to be put off. We'll have to be given a mortal body. That, that which is natural, fleshly, earthly will, will be done away with. will be given that which is heavenly, which is eternal, which is spiritual. Physical body still, but a different kind. So he says here, speaking of those who live, those of you here this morning that are alive, those of you who have blood running through your veins, which I assume, I presume, all of you here this morning at some state or another fit into this verse right here in this category. And the promise is that if you believe in him, you will never die. And death here isn't physical death, it's that spiritual death. It's that death which is, which is fleshed out in the book of Revelation. You will never enter into condemnation or the judgment of God. That second death. You will not be given spiritual life now as you're born again and then somehow die and not have possession of that. What God does in us as we put our faith and trust in Him is eternal. It's permanent. And He says, don't you know that, that you have grace and hope in life now? You got it in death, but you also got it now. You got it as we think about what lies beyond this world, what lies beyond our temporary existence, but you also have that same grace, that same life, that same promise working right now in you if you've been born again. So that's a promise, right? He's saying if you believe in me, you will never, those that die who believe in me will live, and if you believe in me in living, then, then you'll never die. That's a, that's a pretty good thing to say to anybody at a funeral. It's even remarkable as Jesus is at a funeral service getting ready to disrupt the whole thing. Because what he says in concept, what he says in promise, what he says here in, in these precepts, he displays through the power of raising Lazarus from the dead. In case, Martha, you don't know what I'm talking about, wait around a minute. So you see this next section. I want you to notice, we see the promise Jesus gives to him, but we must notice his passion. How does he secure this great promise for us that we can, that we can trust it, that we can see it, or that, that we can rely on it? And we see that first in his passion, secondly in his power. And he says in verse number 28 and down to verse number 
37, his passion. And she calls Mary to him in, in private. And, and so Mary's trying to, and, and there's so many people around, you can't do anything. You can't even think. You just got to have alone time. And so Mary runs out to meet Jesus. They think she's going to weep. And you have this company of wailers. That's the word being used here. They're, they're weeping. They're wailers. They're, I don't know, professional mourners, whatever they are uh, going on here. They're trying to console and join in to that kind of sorrow. And so they follow her out. In verse number 32, Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now there's a lot of difference between Mary and Martha throughout the scriptures. And I'm not going to get into that in personality. She does not go further and say anything about her faith in him or that the father hears him or any of those things like that. Um, you can battle that out in your own mind. What you see is a woman grieving the loss of her brother. She does fall at his feet and she does call him Lord or Sir. That's something of a declaration of submission or surrender or faith. The mourners come out, also weeping. Verse number 33 mourning or wailing or whatever was going on here at the end of the verse he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled and he said where have you laid him they said to him lord come and see and jesus wept let me just read you the new living translation of this passage most of your uh, english translations say deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled new living translation took a different route, and they said, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Well, you see at the end of verse number 33, this passion of Christ rising up, and what we have in our translation is greatly troubled or deeply moved. Uh, The word really means that of agitated, greatly agitated or anger it means to scorn or scold to be indignant Uh, it is used outside of the bible of horses snorting as going in in defiance in battle this is jesus here facing the mourning of the people the death of lazarus in the scene and he is moving into this not passive not cold not without any feelings or emotions well, the bible is telling us john is laying out for us here and then later on uh, that he is angered at what's going on he is troubled within him, his spirit and within his heart he is moving with some sort of r- r- rage I wonder if you ever thought of Jesus that way. To be troubled. To be angered. Well, there's a question or, or debate on what, what is he angry about. And I'm not sure we can be overly dogmatic about what exactly because the text doesn't tell us specifically. Uh, some suggest, which seems to be a good reason, is he was He was angry about Mary and the wailers over uh, their weeping, their mourning, their grieving, and to an extent of without faith. And so he was welling and and welling up within him in anger against unbelief, which could be true. Uh, Jesus could be angry at unbelief. He does uh, 
rebuke the Pharisees and scribes. And B.B. Warfield takes a different approach to this. Speaking about the emotional life of Jesus in an essay that he wrote, very, very uh, enlightening and uh, interesting essay. You can get it free online. Uh, The Emotional Life of Jesus by B.B. Warfield. Just look that up. You should be able to find it. Um, He says this, and I quote, It brought home to his conscience the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. And quoting Calvin, he adds to this, The general misery of the whole human race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. Calvin and Warfield and others look at this anger of Jesus and it's the anger of death itself and it's violent abuse to human human nature. Calvin comments in his commentary, he says, Christ does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. Why? Because as Jesus approaches the tomb where Lazarus is, it's not just the weight of Lazarus' death. It's not just the decay and the, 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 the terribleness and the, the event that has taken place in humankind and society, but it's his, his own impending death that he is facing. It is the great enemy and adversary that lays ahead of him. And Calvin says he is approaching it like a champion, angry, ready for battle. I think that is a pretty good example or a good image for us to see as we see Jesus' anger in this moment, deeply moved and greatly troubled in spirit. I recall years ago being asked to preach a young man's funeral. He's in his early 20s. It was uh, his family attended our church and he came periodically. I think he was baptized. And actually, I was told by one of his family members to just say that he was baptized at your church. And that was the extent of my instructions. Nothing was said about how he died. And it's one of those situations where you don't ask because they don't want you to know. Uh, very, very young, early 20s, maybe 20, 19, 21, somewhere in that realm. And moments like that, and I'm sure you've seen that yourselves as you deal with the reality of abortion in society or maybe the loss of a child or another loved one, some tragedy or accident. Doesn't it stir up something of a holy indignation against death itself and its disaster? The damage it does to lives? Without any, without any grief or, or conscience to the, to the families, it splits apart. The fracturing that takes place, the hope dreams, the, the plans, the goals, the visits, all of those things that are a part of our day in and day out, the unnaturalness and the violence of death. And, and, and doesn't it stir up something of a, an anger against it? I think that's, one way we understand the anger Jesus experienced, reminding us that he feels with us in our distress. He's not unmoved by the plot and plight of life. The things that we face and our fears. He faced and felt anger. But also he says he felt tears. Notice as he asked where they laid him, Lord, come and see, verse number 34. 
uh, verse number 35, in that beautiful verse, Jesus what? And Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, the word here is not the same word of the weepers and mourners of the Jews and Mary. It means to shed tears. He cried. He poured out his soul in anguish. He felt the deep emotions that you and I felt. And you and I are uncomfortable with. Yet he experienced them in his journey here, weeping, crying. We're not told exactly what made him weep, a culmination of all of what was going on, the agitated state in which he felt he was in, the sorrow, the anger, the grieving around him, Mary and the, the Martha and all that was going on, the, the thoughts of Lazarus, even his, own, even his own death. The Bible says Jesus wept. You know Jesus experienced joy. How many of you believe that? Unimaginable, uncomparable joy. So good and so potent, so desirable it is that he promises to his disciples, my joy I leave with you. What do you think about that? Jesus' joy that he experienced in fellowship with God during this life, remarkable, he says, is yours. But we also know that we have a Savior who is acquainted with grief and sorrow. He knows the depths of suffering and the burden and the weight of all of it. He wept. Does your Jesus look like this? Doesn't it remind you that the times where we, we feel like we've got to get ourselves all fixed up before we can go to Jesus? Well, the Hebrew writer urges from us to hold your confidence and draw near. Why? Because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and find help in time of need. Well, quickly, let us look at the concluding section of this, 38 through 44. And the power of Jesus. Lazarus lay dead four days. The body had been wrapped, spices, oils added. The body was decaying. If you know what had taken place, the people were there mourning that had all the chicken that people wanted to bring in and all the finger foods that people bring to those things. The tomb had been sealed and covered. And reality was kind of setting in with the absence of Lazarus. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, verse 38, that same phrase uh, came to the, the cave and he said the most unthinkable thing in the world, take the stone away. Of course, Martha's like, don't, we don't want to do that. He stinks. We don't, you know. And then Jesus rebukes her and says, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you would see the glory of God. So they took the stone away and he prays. He says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. In verse number 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. As if Lazarus was just sitting on a rock in there waiting for the stone to be rolled away and, and just walk right on out and say, here I am. I was just kidding. You found me. Like they were having a long game of hide and seek. Isn't that crazy? 
Here's a guy dead four days, body decayed. There's no lung capacity. There's no heart moving, blood flowing. Muscles are, are all stiff and decaying and rotting. All of his inner tissues, his ears, and, and all the things that make us make us go and work is done. And Jesus calls him, commands him to do the impossible. Come out. As if Lazarus is just going to walk right on out. <laughs> But that's what he did. Isn't that amazing? He come right on out. Lazarus, come out, come forth, come out, whatever your translation says. And someone said, it's often been noted, that he says Lazarus because all the other dead people would have come out with him if he had just said, come out. <laughs> then what would you do? There's definitely not enough food brought for all that. But there's also, some, there's also another reason he calls Lazarus by name. Because he told us in John chapter number 10, he calls his sheep by name. And his sheep hear his voice. And as he calls them, one by one they come. But notice the state he finds his sheep. Unable to respond in, in and of themselves. Still away in some grave, in some cemetery, and he calls them to come forth. In fact, we, we saw this earlier in John 5, 25. An hour is coming, and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. This is different than what he said earlier. He's speaking about you and me living at this moment, existing. And he said there will be a deadness, a spiritual deadness, and they will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will live. How do dead people hear? How do dead people live? Well, it's because the voice of Jesus calls, quickens them, gives them life, enabling them to obey. Play it in your mind, Lazarus. Wrapped up four days, decayed, and he says, commands him, come out. But that's every one of your testimonies here this morning that's ever put your faith and trust in Christ. In your dead state, in your rebellion against God, it's you or tone deaf to his voice as you were without passion towards him, without desire of him. In that moment, the voice of Christ through the gospel called and, and quickened and enabled as he commanded you to live. Calling you by name, one by one, each individually, come forth, come forth. You know, it may not seem as powerful and as dramatic as the story in front of us, does it? I mean, here's a guy who's dead. Would you go down there, down the road and just call someone out of the grave? But it's just as potent, just as powerful, just as dramatic, just as life and death and altering as it is in our spiritual state when God calls us and, and makes us alive in Christ Jesus. It is his voice. It is the voice of the shepherd calling us to believe the voice of the shepherd calling us to come out. Doesn't God tell us that his word does not return back void, but will do what he has purposed for it to do? Doesn't Paul tell us that, that the, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? 
Doesn't he remind us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, hath, hath quickened us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus? Isn't Christ saying that the fixed point, the, the, the life that, that is to be given, that spiritual life and fellowship that is to be given, communion with God is to be given through him and through his word and through the power of the work of the spirit within us? And that is all of our experiences. It doesn't matter what theological background you come from. It doesn't matter where you lean with the sovereignty of God or the free will of man. This is a reality of all of our experiences in Christ Jesus. The power at work in us. And what an encouraging word to you parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters, moms and dads with a prodigal son or maybe several children in your families who have gone stray and not walking with the Lord. They have no interest in spiritual things. You you have poured your heart out. You You have called them. You have guilted them. You have done everything you could do to remind them to believe because the stakes are so high. And yet they remain dead and uninterested. And every attempt to bring them close has in your mind seemed fruitless. And it almost, if we haven't given a scene like this in many other places in the Bible, it would almost seem hopeless altogether if God couldn't do the impossible. If God could not awaken the dead or unclog the ears of the deaf or open the eyes of the blind or cause the dead and impassionate and, and those lifeless people to, to see and to hear and to believe and to love and to obey Gives us the encouragement to keep praying, keep standing before the throne of grace and calling on a God who is able to do and extend and reach in places you and I can't reach in the lives of those who are closest to us. Do you know God can work and move that way? Are you reminded of what he is able to do? And how often you forget you can look in the mirror and say, thank God I am one of his. But for the grace of God. Well, dear friends, I would say keep keep praying and standing before the throne of grace in their stead. For we serve a God who can awaken their heart, aliven their infection, affections, and cause the dead to live. Keep sharing the gospel and example and conversation, for the word of God is powerful. Verse number 44, we can't leave without that, right? The man who had died, what? Came out. <laughs> Come out, okay. That's what Lazarus said, okay. He come out. And as he came out, they said, unbind him and let him go. There's much could be said about verse number 44, and we may look at that again next week. But all of this power and demonstration is point back to that promise he gave us in verse 25. Look at it with me and I'll close. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die notice the last of this martha and all of you here this morning do you believe this have you ever put your faith and trust in christ are you resting in him is he your hope in life and death and if not you can call on him today turn from your sins and trust him for forgiveness and newness of life Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day we've gathered. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for this great example set for us in your word. I pray that you would 
Continue to let it stir in our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name. Amen.